Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello to the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast listeners. Welcome to this episode. Um, my name is Daria Belokvostova. I am a PhD student here at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. And today I will be interviewing Dr. Dirk Berg who is an associate professor at uh, University Medical Center, Rotterdam. Hi, Dirk. Hello, Daria. Thanks very much for joining us today. You just gave a seminar uh, for us at the center, which was very interesting. Thanks a lot for your talk and congratulations on your uh, publication recently. So you study cells from early stages of human embryo, which is, of course, a very important a subject that we all want to know about um, and a very important quality, maybe the most important quality of the cells is pluripotency. Maybe could you explain to us a little bit what that means and what made you interested in this subject originally? Yeah, thank you, Daria. Now, we study pluripotency, that is the uh, ability of cells in early embryos to make all the cells of the embryo. And uh, it sounds kind of evident that cells in the embryo can do that. Um, but it is quite a challenge um, because it, maybe you can uh, imagine that an, an embryo forms from an egg cell and a sperm cell. And these two cells are highly specialized cells. A sperm cell cannot make anything and an egg cell cannot do anything either. So they come together uh, and then they divide and make more cells. And somehow these cells have to acquire the ability then to make everything again. And that is an ability they have to acquire. So it is not right there at the beginning. And the way you, you, maybe you can think about it is that cells do some kind of internal bookkeeping to, to understand uh, what, they, what they can become and what they cannot become. And what they can yeah. become depends on, on which genes they can activate. And when a cell specializes, it will take out all the genes that it doesn't need anymore and kind of wrap these up in a package and put a lock on it uh, and then these genes cannot longer be used and all the cell fates that require those genes are then not longer uh, accessible to that cell. So and that is what's happening during embryonic development and different lineages uh, inactivate different parts of their genome until they have only uh, left what they need for their, their, their final fate. And all these locks uh, are also there in the germ cells, in the sperm cell and the, and the egg cell. And, and these will have to be removed uh, before uh, in the early embryo can again access all the different cell types that it needs. Thank you for that explanation. Pluripotent cells, um, despite that they are so capable of creating all other types of cells in the body, uh, from your talk, um, I understand that they can be further categorized into um, groups um, known as naive and primed. Um, and from your research, um, you basically discovered a new stem cell uh, type within the pluripotent population. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what what these subgroups are um, categorized by, 
and how um, did you come to think that there was an extra stem cell population within that uh, early stages of embryo development? Yes, uh, yeah, so, you, so you ask two questions, uh, really. So, so, these, so pluripotency is this ability to make all, these, uh, all the cell types of the embryo. And I, but, I, but I explained it is a property that has to be acquired. And there's a process in the early embryo uh, when the cells establish this ability. And that is a process takes time. And uh, as soon as the, uh, the first cells that will make the embryo appear, they will start on that process. So these cells already know they will make all the embryonic cells. Um, there's also cells that make extra embryonic cells, that is, for example, the placenta and the membranes around the embryo. So those are first set apart. And then the cells that are not going to do that, they will make the embryo and they will start on this process of acquiring this pluripotency. And that takes, uh, takes time and goes through several phases. So at the beginning, we say these cells are naive pluripotent. And that means that they have they have dedicated themselves to make all the embryonic lineages, but they have not yet completed the process uh, of unlocking all their genes and um, be able to do that. And while that process takes place, the embryo also develops further. It starts to implant and uh, it acquires shape. And only at a certain point after implantation is the the acquisition of pluripotency complete. And now we have a, the cells are in a mature type of pluripotency that we call primed pluripotency. So that's why we have different pluripotent states. Uh, and yeah, during that process, uh, what is happening? This is a, a big question in the field. And so how, how do cells, uh, what are the mechanisms that, uh, that create this pluripotent ability? And we were thinking, well, there must be, uh, must be able to define steps uh, during, these, uh, during this process. And in each, uh, maybe we can chop it up in several phases, and each phase has a distinct task. And because at the same time this embryo is implanting and undergoing what we call morphogenesis, so it creates the different tissues of the embryo, uh, there are regulatory mechanisms. There, there are signals, the cells in the, in the embryo signal towards each other. They tell each other, oh, we are, uh, I'm not yet ready for the next step, or I am ready. Uh, and so the different tissues synchronize each other's development. And, and that's how all the, uh, the different cell populations in the embryo, they progress lockstep through development, and they all decide at the correct moment when to do the next step. So we were thinking these Morphogenetic regulatory steps may also control different steps in the acquisition of pluripotency. So we were initially uh, looking at signals that control uh, the, the, uh, the development of the embryo, the morphogenesis, so the, the, the creation of structures uh, and organization in the cells. And, and these same signals, then we found out that this also control uh, the, the progression from naive to primed pluripotency. And by manipulating them, we could arrest the cells in intermediate states. And in, in these intermediate states, we can see that some aspects 
uh, of becoming prehypothesis has occurred and others have not yet occurred. So now we have tools uh, to, to identify these different steps and, and we can look in detail into what each step accomplishes. That's really cool that you can zoom in onto embryogenesis in such detail, in such defined and small steps. Um, so I picked up from your talk um, this really, in my opinion, uh, interesting uh, name that is given to um, this the type of cells that you've discovered is called rosette stem cells, um, which it just sounds very nice and uh, pretty. So could you explain what this name uh, means, why they're named that way? I'm, I'm glad you like it. Uh, so th they're named after the embryonic stage from which the, those cells are established. And, uh, and that embryonic stage that is generated right when the embryo implants uh, into the mother, into the, the uterus. Uh, and the cells that will make the embryo, they uh, are kind of a, a little clump uh, before that, but then these cells organize themselves into a, a structure that we call a rosette. So each cell acquires a kind of a wedge shape, um, and the wedges line up, uh, so with their narrow pointy ends in the center. So they make like a ring, uh, like a little flower. And, uh, and uh, the people that discovered this stage uh, named that named that stage after that after that flower rosette really is the Latin word uh, for rose. Um, and so I thought it would be nice to to name this pluripotent stage after that morphological structure because it's really it really highlights that uh, this acquisition of pluripotency is really tightly connected uh, to the, the creation of structures and shapes in the embryo. So that's where the name comes from. So the rosette um, stage of the embryo development, um, I remember you mentioned it was discovered in 2014 and being quite surprised by that. Um, why have we not learned about this before? Is it a state that just acquire, uh, goes through very quickly in embryo development? Is it really different, difficult, sorry, is it really difficult to observe? Um, why did it take quite a while for embryo research to get to a point where we see this intermediate state? Why do you think? Yeah, that is such a good question. You know, when that paper came out, I was astonished that in 2014, people could identify a completely novel embryonic structure. Uh, and, and I thought it was, it was amazing. And, and, and the, the, person, the people who, who did this research, uh, Ivan Betshoff and Magdalena Zernika-Guts at, at, at Cambridge then, uh, I, I really admired how, how, they, uh, how they accomplished that. I mean, it's quite something. It, it's uh, to look at something that you think, I would not occur to me to look for a new stage there. I would think everything had been discovered uh, there. So it also requires some bravery, I think, to uh, to spend the time uh, to look for that uh, when you're working on your scientific career. Uh, but the reason it was, was overlooked is, kind of you mentioned it, it, it generates, it's formed just when the embryo implants into the uterus. But, but the embryo is really, really tiny at that point. And before it implants, 
you can easily isolate these embryos because they just float around and you can flush them around and even though they're very tiny uh, you, can, you can look in the microscope and find them but, uh, and sometime later after they have implanted they have grown and the uterus has responded and you have a, a deciduum it's called the implantation site it's very easily visible and in the middle of it is the embryo but when it just has implanted you don't have that yet and you just don't see it. You, you just—it's so tiny. You cannot see any mark of it in the uterus. And we had—we struggled really also with uh, with acquiring these embryos. Uh, also because that stage. Also, a second thing you mentioned—it exists only for a very short time, like two or three hours, uh, and it forms in the middle of the night. So uh, that is a diff uh, additional obstacle. Um, so for us to analyze that stage we had to put our mice change their day night rhythm so the stage would occur during the day uh, and then we used uh, embryos that would become fluorescent uh, so that we could uh, inspect the uterine the uterus under the fluorescent light and see the implantation sites lighting up and that was the only way we were able to isolate these embryos wow that's quite impressive that um, the process is so intricately regulated that it's even connected to daylight uh, cycle. Thanks so much for uh, your explanations. That was really interesting. Um, I thought we'd just wrap up um, interview um, and I ask you something that we often ask our speakers. Um, obviously now is quite a different time for research considering the global pandemic going on. Um, how do you how do you manage that in your lab? Is there um, been has there been a lot of obstacles in your research, or did you get even more motivated to power through? Um, a lot of people manage it in different ways. So I was wondering what's your personal and your lab vibe at the moment. I guess. Yeah, it has been uh, quite a challenge, and. Uh... Yeah, everybody responds differently, uh, but it's been clear to me that everybody in the lab needs encouragement and, and motivation, uh, and they need to feel that them. And uh, but that's that's always true, pandemic or not. They, uh, everybody needs to feel that they are supported uh, and encouraged and uh, and valued for for what they do, uh, and that is harder to do uh, when you are working from home and uh, you can only communicate uh, via, via video conference um, so I still go to the lab uh, multiple times a week uh, people uh, people still work in the lab uh, experiments they can only do in the lab and, uh, and I try to, to speak to everybody at least uh, every week in person uh, even though we keep some distance and, uh, yeah try to be safe but uh, yeah I find that that is really important to keep up the, the good spirits and otherwise yeah I work a lot of home and sometimes I like it it's quiet no distractions uh, and other times uh, I really really need to go out get some fresh air and see some people and, and uh, yeah that's how we struggle through it and we'll see how long it lasts well it's good to hear that despite everything going on, the research still continues. And um, even though there's lots of 
um, COVID-related research happening, it's important to not forget that um, us uh, fundamental biology scientists continue powering through and expanding the knowledge about, um, you know, embryos and about um, all things to do with um, biology. So uh, thanks very much for coming to talk at our center, uh, even though virtually. And all of the luck to you and your lab and your further research. Um, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in and uh, joining this very interesting discussion. And uh, hopefully check out our podcast for um, future episodes. Bye.